Sorry for the interruption. Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Our podcasts keep community strong, and for the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Happy listening. to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio and my name's James Whitmore. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. It's that time of year when we need your support. That's right, if you can, make a donation to our Radiothon so that we can keep bringing you stories about our coasts and oceans, the problems they're facing and the amazing people trying to learn more about them and protect them. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and make sure you nominate Out of the Blue to receive your donation. You can also call 039419 during business hours. We'll be right back after this announcement. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 0394198377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Every year around the beginning of June, thousands of strange creatures start to emerge from the depths of Port Phillip Bay and make their way into shallow waters. That's right, it's spider crab season, and you might be thinking about heading down to the bay's jetties and bays to check out this natural wonder. For such a famous phenomena, we know startlingly little about spider crabs, particularly how many there are and what triggers them to migrate which is why scientists are enlisting our help to track these amazing creatures. To find out more, I spoke to Elodie Compras from Deakin University. Hi Elodie, can you tell us about spider crabs? What are they doing at this time of year? So um, spider crabs is a very iconic species because of the very big gatherings uh, that take part in at this time of year in winter in Port Phillip Bay. There's also other locations um, where spider crabs can be seen at some parts of Tasmania, but I guess the most famous aggregations happen in Port Phillip Bay and especially on the Mornington Peninsula 
in the past, um, yeah, past decades, I suppose. Um, so spider crabs are arthropods, so that means, you know, animals with jointed legs like insects and other crustaceans. And uh, in order to grow bigger, they need to molt, they need to shed their, their shells, and they will expand their soft flesh and then they'll harden in new shells. And while they do that, they actually soft and vulnerable to predators. Um, so that's the main reason. We, sorry, that's the main reason we think that they gather in such big numbers to seek safety in numbers. So if you're gathering with a whole bunch of your mates, you're reducing your individual risk of, of being eaten by these predators, like some rays, some seals also like them. Sometimes some small sharks hang around as well. So, yeah, these aggregations are happening at this time of year for that reason. And what is it about the full moon? Because they actually, you know, they kind of congregate around the full moon in May or June. Why the full moon and why this time of year? Yeah, so we actually don't know. I think that's a a theory that's definitely out there. Mm. I'm not sure at this stage we have enough data to say that this is the trigger for sure. We're still actually, you know, wondering what what cues or what signals they use to get together. There's actually very little that we know about spider crab in general and the aggregations. So, yeah, most people would have heard this theory of the full moon, but I've also heard of aggregations that take place over, you know, weeks, um, sometimes even months, so then that would that would mean that yeah, the, the theory of the full moon is, is not very likely to be supported. So mm. part of our research is to find out, yeah, the cues or the triggers for this these aggregations, the truth is we we don't really know. Mm. That's so interesting, they're very mysterious. And uh, do we have any idea of what they're doing for the rest of the year? point. Um, there have been some sightings of big aggregations at mm. other time of year. Um, people that, you know, use the bay regularly for, for work or that are often on boats, so they, they come across them at various times of year. And once again, the answer is we don't really know why. Um, as you said, this was very, very mysterious. So, um, that's something we're also interested in finding out with more sightings from the community um, at other times of year and, and trying to find out what these aggregations are for. It, it doesn't seem related to molting, or at least we haven't received any evidence that it is. So it's still very much in question why they gather in big numbers at other times. Yeah. Mm. So can you tell us about Spider Crab Watch? What is it? Yeah, so Spider Crab Watch is a citizen science program that we launched at Deakin University to find out more about uh, spider crab ecology in general and, uh, and of course, about their aggregation. So at the moment, we're inviting the community to log in sightings when they see spider crabs. It could be when they come across spider crabs um, you know, alone um, when they dive or snorkel, or it could be when they actually come across, you know, those big aggregations we've been talking about. Um, so it's, a, it's an iNaturalist program, so it's, it's using this 
free platform um, that citizen scientists can easily access so people can uh, create an account and then uh, navigate to the projects by the crowd watch and then uh, log in sightings. And a point that I want to make as well is because uh, a lot of members in the community are nervous about revealing the location of aggregations. Um, so there's an, there's an option to make the location private, which means that only myself as an admin of the project will have access to the exact location data. Uh, and this is information we'll use um, to understand, well, so yeah, exactly what time of year they gather and uh, how long they stick around, what kind of numbers people come across, and um, yeah, various information. So people can uh, submit photos, but that's not essential. We always love to see photos, but if people have come across um, spider crabs and they didn't have photos, they can still log sightings. But we're actually also interested in when people get out and about and, for example, dive or snorkel or, or, or fish from a pier or something, and they can let us know when they have not seen spider crabs. Because if we only know when and where they found, it's really only half of the story when we're trying to, you know, work out what kind of habitat they like, what kind of habitat they don't like, and uh, and what might be triggering the... Um, the aggregation. So, for example, there's another theory that it's related to water temperature. So it'd be good to know, okay, well, I'd say, I don't know, 15 degrees, we have no sighting, no sighting, no sighting, and then when the temperature drops perhaps to 13 or 12, then we start getting sightings. So, yeah, people can log sightings when they see spider crabs, but also when they don't see spider crabs, and both both kind of information are very useful to us. Mm. Can you tell us why is it important to, to know these things about spider crabs, to find out where they are, how many there are, all that sort of thing? Sure, yeah. So this is obviously a very iconic species. Uh, the local community has been very passionate about spider crabs for a long time, uh, but there's just no research that's been done on them to, to find out about the ecology and, and you know, the, the aggregations. I guess, you know, in, the, in light of all the pressures that are happening in our environment, um, it, it's very important to know how we can um, protect them into the future. So, yeah, really we need to start with gathering data on their, their population, their ecology, um, but also on the, the role of the aggregations for the predators that I mentioned earlier. So what's the role in these big gatherings in sustaining a healthy um, population of predators because that's also quite crucial for the broader environment. It seems kind of unusual. Well, I mean, it's the oceans we're talking about that in this day and age there could be a, a, a creature that lives so close to a, a major population centre and we still know so much about so little about it um, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, it, it, when I first uh, experienced the aggregations for the first time when I arrived in Australia about eight years ago, you know, as a, as a diver, I was just mind blown by, by this amazing gatherings and, you know, tens of thousands of individuals together. And then the next day as a scientist, I went back to my desk and, you know, searched through the scientific literature because I had so many questions and 
you know, I wanted to know where they were coming from, how many there were, and I was just amazed and a bit sad that uh, there's almost nothing in the scientific literature about them, and that's sort of that's the, the reason why I, I wanted to um, do this research and, and find out more about the crabs, and it is it is amazing because they've been featured in documentaries like BBC Blue Planet 2 and, you know, more locally like Magical Lot of, Land of Oz and other documentaries like that. And yet, yet there's so, so little that we know about them. But I think it's a, it's a wider, much wider problem where we know so little about the marine environment in general and the species that we know and love, you know, most, most of them, their population hasn't been assessed. We don't have data on their um, on their conservation status, and they're still in some groups, some invertebrates, like they're still species to be described. So, yeah, the, the point is we, we really need to be better at um, understanding our oceans and, you know, the creatures that we come across as, as diverse snorkelers that we know so little about. That was Elodie Compros from Deakin University. You can find out more about Spider Crab Watch on their Facebook page. After the break, we're going to be hearing about some fascinating and worrying new research about what fossil fuel emissions are doing to our oceans. But first, here's a song. This is Dobby with Walk Away featuring the Marindas. And there's a language warning on this one. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. To rattle up some cages, make some changes. Call me, call me Blazing. My culture ancient. I like pissing off a racist. I bet you hate this. Use attic clicking on my face. Bitch, you signed your waivers. Give a shout out to your neighbors as you plan this. Shit so catchy, it's contagious. Catching cases, celebrated by these academics back in Cambridge. That's ironic, we still asking for repatriation. Who you love that you came with? What's your nation? What's the land that you stand on? That's the basics. Man, I swear we've been patient since invasion. Broad brushes that you paint with up on our faces. On an everyday basis, shit is shameless. Laid upon a foundation. Say you saved us. Call it mission education. Written with pages. Up in the book, I'll teach you gave us. Assimilators, and then you blame us. Goddamn, that's a bitch. Talking shit, you might be liable to catch a piss. You took the voice of my mortal worry people, and you ripped it from our throat. Man, I swear I'm about to let them all know. But you tell me, let it go. They took away my language, and you tell me, let it go. They took away my culture, and you tell me, let it go. My generation coming, and we're putting on a show. They want us all to go. You expect me to. Truth, painful to say, with enough right you. Body in the face, looking just like you. But I'm proud of my culture and all I do. I think about what the mob might do. Content away from an online view. Better get the name of the mob right too. Whole life in the racket with all my God. Vaccine, I'ma call my shot. Wiped in the narrative, oh my gosh. Not happening on my watch. Come back down, no matter the cost. I'ma get that spot, keep it up, don't stop going off like a bedside clock. I ain't taking no loss. We get idiots, what do they know? Every day telling me, gotta let go. Sick and they I'm gonna explode like a lot of men toes in a bottle of coke. I'ma get back and I get in control. Treat my teeth like butter men Cinnamon toast, trying to find peace like Buddha, then it came to like Ua. 
second I think you might be close, cause your mouth stinks like Guna. My brother, my cousin, my cooler. Got a black future like Janamine. Ancestors gonna come out to play. Please, please, get out the way. Fill up the days. Thank God damn, what can I say? Damn, I pray for better days. Living in Australia, LIA. Bobby Sanchez, when I say, see you genocide us. Genocide then you us. colonize us, sterilize us, gentrify us. I'm letting him know. Not a fact, never letting it go. People telling me they do get it, but I still feel like I'm under your dark. Battle go out of fat with a little, little, and I'm thinking of her. Each day with the same message, every time I take another look on my phone. You tell me, let it go. They took away my land, and you tell me, let it go. They took away my children, and you tell me, let it go. We're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. That was Dobby and the Marindas with Walk Away, and you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR. Burning fossil fuels isn't just warming up the earth and oceans, it's also making the oceans more acidic. That's bad news for many creatures, and a new study has found it will even harm some of the smallest, most important, and most numerous organisms in the sea. Diatoms are a type of phytoplankton, they're tiny marine plants, and this study found that ocean acidification could reduce their numbers by up to a third by 2,200. That's not even right, 2,200. To find out why that's worrying and how scientists even figure out these things, I spoke to Lennart Bach from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. Hi Lennart, can we start at the beginning? Can you tell us what diatoms are and why are they important? are a type of marine phytoplankton. Well, they also exist in lakes, but uh, in, in, in the oceans they are more abundant because the o- oceans are larger. So they, they, they are special because they build a shell of um, opal, which is a type of glass, really. And um, they are really, really abundant and are responsible for 40% of primary production in the oceans, which is then uh, 20% of primary production on Earth. And that means they're contributing basically to putting oxygen into the atmosphere. Well, that, that is a bit of a tricky story because oxygen uh, is uh, produced by them, but it's also readily consumed again mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, the accumulation of oxygen in the atmosphere happens over millions of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but in principle, they have, over the geological timescales, they have contributed to that, yes. And phytoplankton are also very important in ocean ecosystems as well. Well, yes, they are basically the plants in the ocean, so they, um, they are um, at the bottom of the food web. So your study found that if we continue adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, diatoms could see a global decline of up to nearly a third by 2200. That seems like quite a lot. What could that mean for ocean ecosystems? necessarily primary production as such will mm. change, not necessarily, but 
and others will jump in and do the primary production. So, um, yeah, diatoms just are less important and others become more important. So they are um, losers and others are winners. Mm-hmm. So it's a change in the ecosystem structure. It's like basically if you have a eucalyptus forest, it changes to, I don't know, pine tree forest or something like that. Yeah. And that has implications for the whole food web, obviously. Like an ecosystem would be very different in these two systems. And so this study, this scenario that you looked at in the study is for one of the worst climate scenarios, and it's quite a long way in the future. Do you have any idea of what might happen this century and on the pathways that we're sort of more on in terms of climate change? Uh, well, I think we are more or less on the... We had two scenarios, one worst-case scenario and one like business, more business as usual, but currently we're still on the trajectory of the more business as usual, so we're not, we're not really on a good path, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> well, policies promises, promise that, but it's, it's not really translated into real action so far. Mm. But anyway, so in the, in the, the feedback that causes this decline works through relatively complicated feedbacks um, in marine chemistry and ocean physics, and because the turnover of water masses in the ocean is more on a centuries time scale, it'll take a little bit longer for this to come into play. But the process, in principle, starts basically happening already now. So can you tell us about what's going on here? How does adding CO2 to the atmosphere affect these phytoplankton in the ocean? Oh, yeah. Well, that is a that is a difficult one. It, it affects it in, in, in very different ways. So first of all, of course, ocean warming, which is not a direct effect of CO2 in the water, but in the atmosphere. So the atmosphere retains more heat, and therefore the ocean warms as well, and that has an effect on phytoplankton. But I guess you're alluding to ocean acidification here, so the chemical changes in the ocean that are due to the invasion of atmospheric or anthropogenic CO2 into the oceans. And that causes, well, basically, um, CO2 combines with water to form carbonic acid. So that's basically like what would happen in the sparkling water bottle, just way less pronounced, of course. But, um, yeah, and that, that chemical change, so the increasing um, proton, so the acidity, the pH changes, that will cause um, phytoplankton's com- communities to change. So particularly vulnerable groups um, are calcifying phytoplankton because they they find it more difficult to build shells in more acidic environments. And, well, our study identified diatoms as a potential um, loser as well, but this in this case, it's more of an indirect, if it's a relatively complicated feedback in the Earth system that drives this decline. It's not a direct physiological decline, so diatoms themselves may even like more CO2 because it kind of helps them to uh, fix CO2, but through this feedback, um, they are, well, it's not, it's not, this feedback is detrimental to them. Mm. How do you study something like this and make predictions about the future? Well, in this case, uh, the study was, is basically a synthesis of, well, eight years of research we've done on ocean acidification. I'm, I'm from Germany and this uh, research was within, mostly within uh, a German research group. And um, so we, we basically have this, uh, what we call mesocosm, so it's giant test tubes, uh, two meters in diameter and um, 20 meters deep, and then we enclose natural plankton communities and enrich uh, 
the plank well, water that is enclosed with CO2 and just basically look what happens. And the, in this case, we just synthesized results from five of these studies. And it was remarkable because usually ecology is very complicated and you get all sorts of responses which are not necessarily reproducible and you very often don't understand. But in this case, it was the remarkable thing, and that's also the reason why it was in Nature, so, which is a high-profile journal, is that it's so consistent, right? And, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's how we studied. And the, co the colleague who led this um, research, he also looked at um, sediment traps. So these are basically funnels that people put into the ocean to collect material that sinks from the surface ocean into the deep ocean. And uh, there we also looked at the organic material to see if this, if this effect also occurs there. And yes, it did. So we had like very good um, evidence from multiple lines, um, from observations, experiments, and then also chemical theory that confirmed this. And then, yeah, then, you know, it was compelling enough to make the case. Mm. Where, where are these mesocosms, these um, ocean test tubes? Uh, well, they all, they are transportable. Mm. So as I said, they are, their home base is in Germany. And um, so the studies we did were mostly in Europe. So we were in, uh, in Finland, in Sweden, in, in Norway, on the Canary Islands. And, um, uh, yeah, other studies we did, not necessarily in the ocean acidification context, but um, in, in Peru recently, or, well, not that recently, but 2017 in Peru. Yeah, so basically they can go everywhere. Mm. And how long, how long do you have to leave them out in the ocean? How long are you monitoring them for? Well, that's it. Uh, <laughs> So that depends on how much money you have. They are really ex expensive. So ideally, you. So our studies were usually between two and three months. Sometimes the longest one we did was um, six months in Sweden. That was really intense. Hmm. All right. So how do we avoid this um, potential decline of um, phytoplankton and, and particularly these diatoms? Well, the, obviously the most straightforward way would be to get down emissions, right? So just not, not let this happen because this is a feedback through CO2 that comes into the ocean at some point. And if that CO2 never comes into the ocean, a problem not necessarily solved, but strongly mitigated. Mm. Uh, so that, that is the best, best thing that could happen. And, um, well, <laughs> that's basically the only, only thing that we can do except for some, uh, well, carbon removal or geoengineering um, options that are, well, that not really are options. They only work in, together with emissions reductions. But, yes, yeah, so, uh, there's additional things we need to do. Mm. I always wonder with ocean acidification if there is actually anything that can be done about it that doesn't involve basically just stopping CO2 emissions. In the, in the atmosphere, it will unequivocally, so this is, yeah, it will go into the oceans, right? So there's no way to avoid this. In theory, you could add substances that balance out the pH, but the, the scale of the problem is just too big to achieve this, right? So we ha would have to add substances to a degree that is, uh, well, unrealistic. That was Leonard Bark from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania.
That's all we've got time for this week. If you've liked what you've listened to today, please consider making a donation to our Radiothon so that we can keep bringing you important stories about our coasts and oceans. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and nominate out of the blue. To listen to this show again or any of our previous episodes, you can also head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. We'll be with you again next week, and in the meantime, stay well. Enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help keep community strong for another year.